So why don't we stop wasting our time here? Oh my God. The man become preeminent. He's expected to have enthusiasm. Bring me everyone. Hold it. Enthusiasm. I'm afraid I can't do that. Okay, are we ready? Enthusiasm. You have no idea what's coming. Hi, I'm Michael Morgan and this is Trash LNFG, your regular dose of film and TV news, views and interviews. If you haven't done so already, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review and comment. It just helps us peek our heads above our competition. Now, on this episode, we've got Andre Jacobs. Fine fellow he is, delivering the latest news and the Daily Mirror's Tony Quant drops by for a perspective on WandaVision. I then chat with Nate Parker, star, producer and director of American Skin. And last, but by no means least, I have a chat with Nicole Dupre as we review The Little Things, Malcolm and Marie and Judas and the Black Messiah. First up, here's Andre. Hey, first up, Joss Whedon is officially a scumbag, or allegedly a scumbag, according to uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Charisma Carpenter, and Michelle Track Trackenberg. Oh, I really hope I've said her surname correctly, but I probably haven't. Now, if those names don't aren't familiar to you, that's uh, either because A, you want a nerd, and B, because you're not old like myself, but they are three women who starred on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and in Charisma Carpenter's case, she also starred on Angel. Joss Whedon, who was the director of the first two Avengers movies, uh, has been basically accused of shenanigans. It's not quite... Well, there are quite some explicit things, and I would suggest that you probably ever read of them. But it looks like Joss Whedon is officially a dickhead. No disrespect. Yeah, no disrespect, bro. He's a dickhead. Next up, Tom Holland, the man who plays Spider-Man, has denied that there will be a Into the Spider-Verse live-action movie starring Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. Um... All the news, all the Marvel news has been pointing at this for basically about six months. We've all been excited for it. Apparently, it's not happening according to, to Mr. Holland. I think you're lying. I think you're trying to, to put everyone out to, to one side. And, I, don't I don't know what you're doing, Tom. But just stop it, man. You all know that in spite of us, the live action is coming. And I'm excited for it. I'm really excited for it, to be honest. And last but not least, we have seen uh, Jared Leto's uh, iteration, incarnation of the Joker for Zack Snyder's Justice League Snyder Cut. And uh, it looks surprisingly like uh, Joaquin Phoenix as Joker. Yeah, it, to be honest, it looks kind of like a carbon copy. Um, so basically you're giving me the, so if Joaquin Phoenix is like the A plus sort of Joker, then I guess this may be like an A minus because I was not impressed by the Suicide Squad Joker at all. He sucked. So, but you know, I'm, let's give it some time. Let's see what happens and whether or not he's, he's, he's actually decent this time because he's a great actor. Uh, but God damn, that film sucked. Right, until next time, take it easy. Peace. I'm not okay. you, Daddy. He's in trouble. Not like your dead husband can die twice. What? Full of surprises. I'm fine. I'm fine. 
Avengers. Are you here to help us? Why would you think that? <laughs> I think a few unsavory characters settling in the neighborhood. Are you here to help us? It's a pleasure to welcome Tony Kwan, the man, the myth, the legend. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I've um, I've tried to think of some top five lists for one division. So <laughs> See how many people we can piss off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, speaking of which, I mean, that is what you're really here to chew the fat about. One yeah. Division starring Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen returning from the Avengers franchise. We've now got them on our smaller screens with Disney Plus's One Division. Now, for a lot of people, I have to say, um, who I've come into contact with, who I've been mingling with online, they have not latched onto it and they are missing out. Just tell them what they're missing out on, Tony. Oh God, where, where do you start? So I, I guess it's, well, it, it's a, a crazy world, isn't it? Westview, which is this this sort of made up world that we're, we're sort of still coming to terms with um, that, that finds wonder and, and vision plonked in. Um, so the, the first few episodes shot in, in black and white as well, so that they've, they've reflected the 50s and then each episode has moved on. So we've gone 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. and Just 50s. pause there. On the black and white aspect of the 60s um, yeah. leading into the 70s, that is what a lot of people found a little bit hard to swallow, a little bit hard to actually navigate, a little bit hard to get into. Yeah. What's the purpose of the black and white? There was a specific emphasis of this. In terms of fan theories, what are the fan theories around the black and white moving into um, colour? Oh, God. I mean, it depends where you look, doesn't it? I mean, I, I guess it, it was very much on, on the style of some very popular TV programmes from that mm. era. And, you know, you're, you're probably more... <laughs> what are you trying <laughs> more, to say? More with that, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think personally it, it worked really well, and how 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 it was shot as well, because it was on the the smaller smaller scale and, and yeah. stuff, and, and we had the piped in you know audience noise from you know the the old school sitcoms and stuff, um, and and then it started to bleed over. There was a couple of, of early sort of things, wasn't there, where where she she found the helicopter that that was in color, and then there was some blood that that come through in color. Um, and, and then obviously we're, we're now moving into this week as of today, episode six, which was the, the 90s. So for me, you know, being the younger of, of the two on this, this podcast, you know, that's definitely my, my error. And straight away, I, I was fully invested in, in this episode just from, from the offset. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's been a bit hit and miss, hasn't it? Because I think some people come in then expecting everything to be in black and white and probably thought, well, you know, this is not my, my cup of tea. Whereas yeah. those who probably stuck with it have have probably enjoyed it a bit more and got to see exactly what the show's getting to. So I think those first few, don't, you know, my, my only advice would be don't take those first couple of episodes as, as you know, the rest of the series. And if mm. you're, you know, stick with it, because I think as we, we learned through sort of episodes three, four and five, it, that's when the main sort of story started to come out. And we, we actually got to see outside of Westview because most of it was all, all taken part inside of Westview without knowing, you know, what was going on. And, and obviously the introduction of, of some familiar faces from the MCU with with Jimmy Woo and Professor Darcy and, and Monica Rambo as well have, have certainly you know opened up the opened up your eyes to, to what's going on outside and clearly they're you know that they're they're trying to to work out what the hell is going on as well. And that's just it. Just going back to the whole black and white 
as a jump off in terms of the adverts that was in, interspersed within that black and white yeah. and the idyllic nature of everything being happy and clappy and there was an audience supporting it was almost as though that was her way of dealing with trauma it's like from what we've come to um, gather from episode to episode this is a world which has been created for Wanda to actually manage her trauma and to live a life which is kind of like away from a lot of what she's actually experienced in terms of, this is almost like post-traumatic stress disorder that she's got, which has been managed through Westview. So I like the way in which the world unfolds in which you still have references to that trauma, but it's managed away. Things like Lagos, for when you uh, accidentally have an accident or a spillage. And that's obviously um, harking back to what actually happened in Lagos. Um, now, for me, the kind of like introduction or the reintroduction of Hydra through the adverts as well was fascinating. I like the clever way in which they did that. And um, I like the way that there is this emphasis and it's an overemphasis on time, especially in the adverts, you'll have time for yourself. So, I mean, going into episode six now we're on, right? We, I would say, are a lot clearer on where we are in terms of like jumping from black and white way past um, the 70s, 80s, we're now in the 90s. I mean, what was your feeling on the whole aesthetics, obviously you being a 90s kid? Do you think that um, really and truly this, this, this is almost like leading into present day? It has to, by way of the yeah. chronology which is going on here. Yeah, I, I, I Absolutely. And whether we, we actually go past in, into the future as well, potentially, you know, mm. in season two or however many episodes this has got left to run. I think there's, is this a nine, nine episodes? episodes? Yeah, so, so we've got three yeah, more. Yeah, three, three more to, to go. So potentially um, going a bit further in, into the future. But yeah, I, I guess, you know, I, I've really enjoyed it personally, um, just getting, you know, the flashbacks to the, the different, different eras and stuff. And uh yeah, it, it certainly kept me engaged. And, you know, you've now got that story underpinning it all, haven't you? Where, you know, whereas if you look at episode one as a standalone, you think, bloody hell, you know, what the hell, what the hell is this kind of thing? But it, mm. all, it all kind of, you know, is starting to, to come into itself. And I think they, you know, they've done a good job in, in introducing all, all the, you know, the outside characters pretty early on. They, they might have been, been able to do it an episode earlier, but... Um, I think it was good to give us a, a flavour in the first couple of, of what Westview is and, and who who's playing around in, in Westview. What what are your thoughts on the incidental characters who don't seem to be incidental characters if you are watching keenly from a comic fan point of view? Because yeah. Agatha Harkness, Agnes in um, yeah. WandaVision, she obviously plays some kind of role. She's obviously in on it because on the times that she's interrupted other characters from kind of overstepping their mark yeah. um it does seem as though she's pretty clued up as to what's going on yeah to be fair she she's my favorite character in, in the whole thing i absolutely love her and, mm. and I think earlier on in i think it was the first or the second episode when she was sort of heavily involved in getting her ready for that because she thought they was having the anniversary didn't they because that was the first episode actually where they had the heart on the calendar yeah you know they, they both put two and two together and, and assumed it was something to do with a, a wedding anniversary or something and mm -hmm. you know, and, and she's been very good in, in other in other series and films, and so in, you know, particularly Step Brothers, she was she was great in um, as, as an actress. Um, Car Caroline, oh, God, 
name name escapes me what what her, her real name is, but yeah, I, I really like her as an actress, so I, I've definitely enjoyed her. And and this week, I guess you know there was that that part where she was dressed up as as the witch, and you're thinking, you know, is this going to be it? Is this where you know she reveals herself to be Agatha? But we yeah we get that. Um, but you know whether that's a, a teaser to 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 later on or, or not, you know, definitely enjoyed the the characters and their next door neighbor and and stuff. Um, yeah, it's been been really good, and and I think you know, like, given the platform, you know, realistically, would Vision and Wanda have ever got a film made about them? Probably not is the answer. Yeah, even on the platform of the Disney Plus, they've almost you know done better out of it because they're going to be much more well known going forward. You know, in in whatever form they come out with, and I think it's just a a proven concept that this you know this works, doesn't it? And you don't have to have you know Hawkeye the movie because no one really likes Hawkeye, but Hawkeye as a TV series will probably, you know, get a lot more well, behind on it, won't it, to be honest? I think it's pretty clear that given what we've seen in episode six, there is no life beyond Westview for Vision, but possibly Wanda. And it yeah. makes me feel that they're setting up Wanda to be transitioning into a villain for either Spider-Man 3 or Doctor Strange, the Multiverse of Madness, because the way in which her arc is going at the moment, it doesn't look as though she's leaning more towards superhero. It's like she's leaning more towards supervillain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, especially at the, the end of the episode where, you know, she she casts the, the uh, Westview out across, you know, further across the, the land. And, you know, it is, it is definitely leaning towards that, isn't she? Is she... Um, yeah, is she the bad guy at the end of at the end of all of this? And, and this is just us seeing, you know, how she she responds to to us, trying, you know, the, the good guys trying to, to calm her down. Really, you know, we've got the introduction introduction of Petro, and you know, we saw what happened to him in, in this episode when, yeah. when you know, obey or or agree with her. Um, Will that will that lean over to to her do anything to the kids? You know, you, you never know because in 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 the comic world, both Billy and Tommy um, do die, don't they? From from what I've what I've read, I can't attest yeah. to being a, a comic book fan and having read all of the the backstories. Um, but that that's what I, I read. Well, you know, will that be at the hands of of their mum, or you know, did they ever exist? Is it all just a, a figment of? of her imagination who who knows it, it really i mean i guess you know it's there for them to to play around with isn't it and you know that's part of the the appeal to to this series for me i think so and i mean just one thing to note on that in terms of um the two children one she can't control them because when she was kind of like trying to get them to stop crying they wouldn't stop crying yeah. they started laughing at her but um it seems as though anything which is kind of like um, dead in the real world obviously can't live in her world. Because if you notice with um, her brother Pietro and when you notice um, there was this flash where there was this brief moment of him basically just a corpse with like the bullet holes from uh, Age of Ultron um, still in him. So it's kind of like things that she brings back from the dead can't live, but things which seem to have kind of manifested themselves in this reality I think that there is a chance for and that's why I'm thinking maybe that sets up the next phase 
of the Marvel Universe, which I'm sure will be unpacked in the forthcoming uh, wave of miniseries or TV series, which we're actually going to be on Disney+. Plus. Tony, it has been an incredible 10-minute canter with you uh, around Disney+. Plus's, I would say standout. I would say um, flagship show, uh, Division, And we've got three more episodes to go until we fully understand exactly what's going on. Thank you again for joining me on Trash OMG. Nate Parker, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to Trash OMFG. I have to say, having watched your debut feature, A Birth of a Nation, A Birth of a Nation, let's try again, A Birth of a Nation, um, released in 2016, I was struck by the historical significance, the fact that Nat Turner was actually the focus of that, and it was about an uprising. Um, basically, I'm just letting your agency in. Um, basically, uh, I was struck by the kind of like similarities in terms of historical significance to what you've actually unveiled, unleashed, unraveled in this um, feature. I'll tell you why. Because this is a timeless piece. When you think about it, you could actually look at what's happened here and in any historical context, actually say that represents that time period. Was that the kind of um, narrative that you were going for there? Absolutely. You know, the film, the hope for the film is that it can sound as an alarm, you know? I get a lot of feedback from, from individuals expressing their, um, you know, uh, 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 unexplainable um, unbelief in how timely it is. You know, it's, it's, mm. it's, the film is so timely. I said, yeah, but we made it in 2019 before George Floyd, you know? And the sad reality of America is that if it came out in 20 years ago, like you said, it'd be relevant, 10 years relevant. And if we're not careful, 10 years from now, it'd be relevant. So I think in creating something that could be a conduit for the, 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 the trauma that we feel, you know, the, the, the smothering of our voices, the decimation of our skin. The hope was to create something that could elevate the space by which we can communicate how we're feeling in this country to anyone who would watch, you know, that I don't, I'm no hero. And this film is, doesn't give you all the answers, you know, because you've seen it. Mm. It's really uh, just a barometer. It says, this is where we are right now. For now, hopefully, but this is where we are right now and so the hope is that you know to really answer your question you know I, I don't want this I hope it's not seen as a movie of a moment because of George Floyd and the insurrection at the Capitol I hope people will see this and really question and challenge the status quo uh, when it comes to our bodies being slaughtered in the street and then they will challenge the double standards that we have to face every day rolling the dice when we get out of our beds and hoping we make it back to our, our beds and our children make it back to their beds now you've written, directed and starred in this. And I know that directors have every single frame, reason and aspect of this film down packed. And there is always a reason for something that we're seeing on screen. There seems to be like a historical significance to the main protagonist called Lincoln Jefferson. Now, just going on from the conversation we were having about the historical piece that you kicked off with your debut feature, what was the rationale? What was the reason? Why did you have 
Lincoln Jefferson in there. You made a point of making sure that people knew and understood the name. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I don't think there's a frame that we don't, as directors, mull over and write and rewrite and think about how we will articulate it. And specifically with his name, I wanted to point out the the, the irony of, of Lincoln, you know, Abraham Lincoln specifically, as someone who is credited for freeing the slaves. Uh, but when you really read into the historical record, you realize it was something he did begrudgingly, that if it wasn't for Frederick Douglass, <clears throat> that document would, have, would not have been signed. And if you know the Lincoln-Douglass debates, then you know that he spoke very clearly about him recognizing a difference between the humanity of people of European descent and people of African descent. And then if you juxtapose that against uh, Thomas Jefferson, and I don't need to get into uh, the atrocities uh, that he was in, engaged in as a, as a forefather, so to speak, in, in slave owning, uh, then what you have is uh, the, 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 the fruit of uh, the, 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 the many injustices that have happened in this country up until this moment. Where it becomes ironic is that we are the people that are trying so desperately to fit into this country. You know, we are, the, we are as, as if we are the, the stepchildren. We've been brought here as chattel, our, our ancestors. Uh, we've been separated from you, our brothers and sisters are, are, are on the continent. You know, we're stripped of so much and then forced to live within the context of constant fear and terrorism for hundreds of years. Yet and still, we name our children after these, uh, uh, these forefathers, so to speak. And to go one step further, Lincoln, Lincoln Jefferson is a veteran. He's someone that has traveled and fought uh, to uphold the sanctity of the Constitution. So what I wanted to do is just call attention to the, the, the irony, to call attention to the symbolism of what it means to be an American, to have American skin, but to be operating under uh, a, a target, so to speak, for the entirety of your life, no matter what your contribution is to that nation. So it's, it's, it's an indictment just on the, the pervasive na nature of, of racism and white supremacy as a historical device because far too often we look at our condition in a vacuum, right? We're like, oh man, police brutality from Michael Brown to now, something has to stop. But if you recognize, if you go back to the times of these forefathers and recognize how police officers came to be, that their former name was Patty Roller and that that was short, that was kind of mixed into a term called patrollers, and that their job was to patrol the plantation, then there's no wonder there's a, a brokenness when it comes to, a, or a fracturedness when it comes to the relationship between us. So I love that you're bringing up this idea of historical record because we can't separate ourselves from who we, who we are, who we were at the beginning. Um, and, and my hope with this film and specifically with The Birth of a Nation is that we can just you know, be honest about that you know, so we can get to a place of reconciliation, get to a place of genuine healing. We can't hide from this anymore and expect things to be different just because we hope that they will change. You've obviously purposely entitled it American Skin. Was there a sense when you were making this that you could have actually called it UK skin, Brazilian skin, French skin? The significance and the resonance, the global aspect of this 
just kind of like rings out. I guess that was part of the filmmaking process. 100%. Very dear friend of mine, artist and poet Abdul Malik uh, from uh, France. Uh, he, you know, we, we dubbed it, had the trailer dubbed in French and he released it. And we talked a lot about that French skin and how the correlation between being from the United States of America, uh, but being called, you know, black or African-American yet, you know, our peach brothers and sisters, our white brothers and sisters get the American with no hyphen. Uh, and what that means, you know, what does it mean to have an American skin and to be American? What does it mean to have French skin? I mean, Italian skin, we're seeing globally the, 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 the I will, you know, dare I say terrorism against people of African descent all over the world. We see videos of how they're treated in hotels in China and how they're treated on the streets from the police in Paris. Uh, and it makes, it should make us question what does it mean to be a citizen of a nation, but to be treated like a, a stepchild or to, to go even further, be treated like less than a human being. And what will we do globally? What will we do collectively to kind of change that and erase that stigma? Uh, because what's happening is it's getting passed down and the pervasive nature of it and the fact that we're ignoring it positions not only the oppressor to perpetuate the behavior, but also the children of the oppressor just by virtue of seeing it unchallenged to kind of take on that approach and then further perpetuate that behavior to generations. And that's the cycle I believe that we're li living globally. Now the film follows you as the main protagonist and that is you play the main character who is basically coming to terms with the loss of his son at the hands of, well, unscrupulous police. Brutality is a theme which actually permeates the film. Now, Link actually seeks to get justice and he does it in a Sidney Lumet's kind of 12 Angry Men scenario. Now, I take it that was the reference point that made you feel, you know what, this is the canvas upon which I'm gonna paint. Why that specifically? Because you could have gone to anything. You could have gone to Dog Day Afternoon. There were so many different reference points, but that's the one that kind of like struck me. Well, I, I specifically chose that approach because it involves having a conversation that we appropriate yet never have. So often we talk about the conversation only. Oh, there has to be a conversation between law enforcement and the community. It's never happened. It doesn't. They will send law officers to Jesse Owens Park to have a barbecue and invite black people and take pictures. You know, they'll show images of the white cop crying and the black kid crying and them hugging and give that to us to kind of pacify us, to kind of tell us this is the broad stroke. Everything's actually gonna be okay. But what we don't do is create space for both, both of these sides to be honest about how they feel about each other, how they feel about themselves, how they feel about the, the institutions that they are a part of and the, the structural racism that has, has, has literally built those walls. Um, I felt like that the 12 Angry Men specifically created an opportunity that justice itself, as it says in the tag, could be on trial. The conversation around what does justice really look like to these American people with their American skin. To a blind person, they're just a bunch of Americans in the room. But to a person that whose eyes have been opened, just seeing the returning citizens on one side who have been stripped of their rights, right? Seeing the law officers who are being indoctrinated in this, this, this methodology of terrorism, seeing the, the woman and how she's having to deal with being in a predominantly male 
environment and how that affects her reality. Seeing the, the regular everyday citizens who are constantly saying, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know they, had, they could go. You, so, and, and then having the grieving father and then having the grieving mother through the FaceTime, carrying everything, grieving, having to calm people down, build people up, all these people in the, sa in the same space, voicing their truths, speaking and elevating their voice and, and holding space where they can be unapologetic about how they feel without the fear of being silenced by a baton or a gun or a stun gun or taser, uh, but being having, having the floor and being able to say for better or worse, how you feel. And it's interesting that you point out that this is very, very conversational, the film. And you're doing it, you correct me if I'm wrong here, you're doing it on two fronts. You're doing it visu visually and you're doing it audibly. When I say visually, I'm talking about the kind of um, juxtaposition of cameras. You've used um, CCTV, you've used TV, you've used um, camera, handheld camera. You've actually used iPhone footage. And it's like, I felt as though I was personally in on the conversation. Was that? the whole reasoning behind having so many different viewpoints and different vantage points? Absolutely. You know, uh, a big goal for me, big intention was to engage young people, not in a way that they could be taught from this film, but in a way that they were the driving force of the narrative. So even when you said that Link is the protagonist or Link is the lead, I would go so far as to say Jordan is the lead. He's the one that is driving the narrative. He showed up with the camera. He kept the cameras rolling. And then he was the one ultimately, we know what happens at the end. So I think it's important to recognize that anything that we think we have right now with respect to the answers to how we might move forward as a global people of African descent, we only, we, we, we were, we've been borrowing that. It now belongs to the next generation. It's not ours anymore. So I wanted technology to be a critical component of how this was captured. I also wanted to dispel any ideas around how a film is supposed to make you feel like you were there. We use stick up cams. We used cell phones, as you saw, handheld. We had Alexa, Red, GoPro, it, 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 whatever it is, we used it. Because I also want young people to know, to tell your story, you don't need millions of dollars. We didn't have millions of dollars to make this film. It was a very tight budget, but what we had was a goal. We had willing people, a remarkable uh, uh, cast, you know, Amari Hardwick, Theo Rossi, Milana, Jamon Jackson, Sierra Capri, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, Shane Paul McGee, uh, Bo Knapp. These are all people, and, and I think it's important to recognize that they were, Mo McRae, who I don't, I don't wanna leave out, not only were they, they, they good actors, but they, they I mean, I, I, as I acted opposite them, it felt so authentic. Everyone brought their A game because they recognized the stakes. We can't get this one wrong, you know? So technology, crossing the lines of, of, of technology and, and, and breaking the barriers, uh, encouraging and, 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 and really illuminating the, the capacity of young people and their ability to push the narrative and control the narrative and disseminate the narrative was very, very important to me. Uh, and these are all things that were developed in, in, in prep. You raise this in something that you said just there, and um, I found it very difficult to fault this film. I found it just near on perfect. And I tell you why, 
what spoke to me was the authenticity. Is this coming from a personal experience? Because it, it seemed as though this was so genuine, so genuine to a, a level where I felt quite disturbed by it. I felt I had to watch this twice. One, to get a sense of what I, it was that I was observing. And two, because we were having this interview today. If that wasn't the case, I wouldn't have watched it more than once. Not because it was a bad film, it was perfect, loved it, but it was quite disturbing in its authenticity. Where does that authenticity or where does that authentic voice come from? Is it from personal experience of dealing with the police and yourself? Have you got any examples that you were drawing on for this that kind of like drove the narrative? 100%. This film is a, is a letter to my nephew. Uh, I got custody of my nephew at 13 and uh, really rescued him from his situation. You know, he was in a very broken school, like so many of our brothers and sisters are in. And uh, he was doing, you know, not doing very well. He wasn't supported and my sister needed help. His father wasn't in a position that he could help. So I brought him to uh, California and put him in a, you know, a great neighborhood in one of the top schools in the nation thinking to myself, okay, he's good now, he's gonna be okay. Uh, and, very, and, and it wasn't long after that August, let's say 2014, where you know, I'm sitting on the couch next to my nephew and we're looking at the body of uh, Michael Brown lay fat, face down and bloating in the sun in Ferguson. And as we're watching the news, my nephew turned to me and he said, uh, you know, Uncle Nate, what do I do if I get pulled over by the police while I'm on my bike? And of course, my first answer is, well, first thing you do is call me, you know, wherever you are, I'll likely be close. I'll come in to be able to support you. Then I was like, wait, 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 don't reach for your phone. Uh, okay, slow your bike down very slowly. Don't, don't panic. Put your feet down on the ground. The second you can get your hands up, get them up. Turn to the officer very slowly. Make sure you make eye contact so he can see your humanity, see your baby face, that you're not a threat. Anything he tells you to do. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me like, what in the world? And I realized I'm traumatizing him. I'm literally traumatizing the young man, my son at this moment, and don't have a, an acceptable answer for how he might be able to protect his life in the presence of someone that we pay to exist. Uh, and I was very disturbed by that. I felt, you know, ashamed, felt like, wow, like for all this work I'm doing, all this activism I'm striving to be a part of, I, I can't even protect my own child. And that, that was the seed of this film. It comes from a very personal place. And as I tell people, this is not a, this is not a, a film to me. It's really a, 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 a barometer of where we are right now for now. And, you know, an attempt that, that I can look to or give to my nephew that he can know that I've tried, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm looking at surrounded hopefully by generations of people behind me that I can know that I did my very best to wake us up or to add to the conversation in such a way that we can say, whether it's us saying, wow, we have been represented. We have sent this siren out to the world as to our condition in this country through this film and other films like it. And then on the other side, law enforcement being able to say, I've never heard my voice represented on film in the history of film, wow. And hopefully it resonated such a way that that cop in the UK, that that cop in the United States of America. That cop in Brazil takes a beat just a split second before he pulls that trigger, maybe because of something he saw that made him feel disturbed. And now there's a young man or a young woman or an old man or old woman walking around breathing air that may otherwise not have been. 
You know, one of the things which kind of struck me was the reference points, again, going back to history, in that as we were touring the bedroom and what struck me was the large picture of Malcolm X, it was the biggest picture in the room. And then further referenced was you actually looking out the window, peeking out the window with your rifle in a kind of like iconic pose of Malcolm X. And then really what suddenly kind of like popped up as a question to me, which I was dying to ask you, is this film by talking about we need to have dialogue, we need to have um, action through dialogue. Is that leaning more to Malcolm or is it leaning more to Martin? Because some of the dialogue kind of like raises this kind of position that we can talk, we can pontificate, but that's not getting us anywhere. We're tired of all of this turning the other cheek. It's time for some Malcolm. So I just wanted to ask you, I mean, where is the film positioned in terms of, I don't want to give you the ending away, but what do we do in the future? I say that, sorry for this to be a convoluted question, but I say that because it's set in the context of what happened in the Capitol building. You had majority white, I would say 99.9% .9 white people rushing to the Capitol building with guns, I might add, in a violent act of insurrection. That wasn't about dialogue. That was more Malcolm than Martin. So just like positioning that question all bundled up in one, where well, are you first, going with this as a, as, as a solution for us all? I'll start at the, the end and work my way backward. I, I would be careful in associating the insurrection with Malcolm because what Malcolm was fighting for was very different than those who planned that insurrection uh, on, 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 uh, at the Capitol. You know, there's a big difference between raising a gun and fighting for the very existence of your children and fighting to maintain your white supremacy over people. It's very different. I would even go so far, I would go, well, I'll, now I work my way back to your question and I'll say, this film, when, when asked, does it evoke Malcolm or does it evoke Martin? My question to you, and it's rhetorical, mm. is which Martin are you speaking of? Because if you're speaking of the Martin that often is evoked in Black History Month that only said two things. He didn't give it, he's only, he only said two things. <laughs> First thing he said was, I have a dream that black and white kids would hold hands. And the only other thing this, this Martin said was hate can't drive off out hate, only love can do that. Let's put that Martin over here for the people that want to evoke him. And now let's evoke the Martin Martin as, as I so humbly evoke as, as my elder and my ancestor. That Martin said that there's no Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation that can bring about the freedom that we need. It must be asserted that the, the black man woman should stand up in their own, assert their own manhood and womanhood. That Martin also said that there are two Americas. There's the, the America that is overflowing with milk and honey that we don't live in. And then there's the America that is, that is I forget the exact, exact quote, but basically in despair, right? The, the Martin that, that gave the, the, the uh, speech, where do we go from here? 
one of his last speeches where he, 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 he literally goes on to talk about all the things that did not change. The Martin that said to uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, I have integrated my people into a burning house. And I only say this to say, for me to choose between Martin and Malcolm is to disparage the actual thing he wanted for us. Because this Martin also you know, said that, that uh, uh, you can't, freedom will not be voluntary given, voluntarily given by the oppressor, must be demanded from the oppressed. That sounds like M Malcolm to me. That yeah. sounds like my, by any means necessary, right? All caps. Yeah. So I would say this is positioned to honor both of those brothers as they stand on the very same desire. You know, so yes, optically, when you saw Malcolm at the window, that was specific as every frame is. When you saw Malcolm, the biggest picture on the wall. Mm. And if you watch the film again, there's another clue in that room that you should look up, that you should look for. And it will answer every question. It will specifically answer this question. Specific, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. Watch the film. In the room, when the camera makes its pans, there's something it lands on that I think sums up everything Black people are feeling. We want freedom. You know, I'm not going to say, please don't come into my house and, you know, please don't take my nephew. Right? Yeah. It's, it's going to have it's going to have some heat behind it because I love my family. I love. Right now, wherever she is, Tamir Rice's mother is grieving her son. Right now, having nothing. Maybe she doesn't hasn't seen the film. Maybe she knows nothing about the film. That is not a prerequisite. Right now, she's thinking about her son and she is grieving. We can say the same about Breonna Taylor's family, the same about Trayvon Martin's family. Mm. So the question is, what will we do to stop it? Or is there anything that we won't do to stop it? In some ways, the film is a cautionary tale. It's saying, I'm showing it to you in a movie form so we don't have to experience it in real life. If we can get ourselves together, I don't want anyone running up in anywhere and, and killing anyone. I don't want that. That's why, you know, it's art. I get to create the space for us to have honest dialogue yeah. without, and we don't go home after we say cut, you know? I definitely hear that. And I, I'm glad you reminded me of one thing, and that was one of the most important aspects that I took away from this film. I went in there invested to be on the side of Link, but I felt myself drawn towards the cops. Not entirely, but because they were giving me another perception, another aspect of reality. And that's why to draw in the Capitol building, to them, their reality was liberation. This is our, what we're actually living. This is our truth. This is our perspective. So bringing it back to the film, um, I take it that was the whole intention to give both sides of the coin, not to kind of uh, justify actions, but to say, hold on, have you thought a bit from this, or this perspective? Yeah, I think it's important in any dialogue for there to be dialogue from both sides. You, you know what I mean? And, and, and I don't apologize for anyone. It's just, it's very important for us to recognize that what we're fighting is not a person, it's a system. Yeah. You know? So when a person pulls out a weapon and kills one of our babies, yes, he should be held accountable. Absolutely. But putting him in jail doesn't fix the problem because the next person that fills his boots, given the same situation, given the same training, will likely result in the same you know, outcome. So to create the space to be able to talk about just how these things manifest 
then we give, then we get a better understanding of what we're actually standing against. If not, we're fighting the air. It's the police are killing us. Yes, but let's talk about exactly just like with historical context. When you understand where police come from, then you understand the fractured relationship, right? Let's uh, let's understand. You know, in my research and all these cops I talked to under the condition of anonymity, let's talk about the cops that that said, you know what, Nate? There are two types of policing. There's administrative policing. Hello, how you doing, sir? Uh, can I have your license registration? Thank you so much. Sorry to bother you. Then there's criminal policing. Get the fuck out of the car and get on the curb. Right? And I remember asking this particular law officer, I said, um, that's interesting. I said, uh, is that in the manual? The criminal policing, administrative policing? He said, no, but everybody knows. Right? Wow. Isn't that insane? Yeah. And, he's, and it was just the, the demeanor was never angry. It was, yeah, and we go into the jungle, it's criminal police. They, they want to kill us. They hate us. They want to kill us. They want to kill my partner. They who? Well, you know what I mean. No, 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 I don't. Who, who wants to kill you? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. We move this way where there's a blanket and then the fear is about that blanket rather than the minutiae, we lose. So I just wanted to, to create an honest dialogue, a truly honest dialogue about the now, not the canned speech we get from the cop you know, Darren Wilson, when he's like, this happened and that happened and that happened and that happened weeks later. But nah, bro, you can't move. There's a, there's, you see, I'm strapped. What happened? Don't <laughs> lie. You know, you, you don't never get to see that. It's never happened. So mm -hmm. that was that was the reasoning behind giving a voice to everyone, not to apologize for anyone, but just to go on record for everyone. So then we could end the film and then start unpacking that yeah. because guess what I guarantee you this cops are going to watch this film whether they tell us they are or not mm. they're home at just like us a lot of them from the pandemic and they're going to be like they're going to they're going <laughs> it's true it's going to happen it's my hope because we know what's happened we know what time it is Yeah. you know my hope and like I, I even tell you I hope white people see this film too I hope, I hope everyone that, that has an issue with racism and white supremacy, whether it be in this country or anywhere else, if nothing else, just give the, give the movie a chance. Turn it off when you get bored, if you feel like it, but just give it a chance to just listen to some of the things that are discussed and try to contextualize them within the context of your, of your environment. Yeah, I realize we're horrendously over time, but I've got one final question. Okay. Tell me, tell me that the next project is going to actually follow on from this and we're going to see, you see, the reason why I ask this, it's, it's almost like an evolution of <clears throat> you unfolding on screen. We've had you as Nat Turner. We've had you as Link Jefferson. But I sort of like saw an unpacking of a character with each movie, if that makes sense almost like a riff on the final or the, the, the previous character, because if you look at Nat Turner, he organized a, a, a insurrection revolution, a mini revolution. And, you know, you did the same thing. Well, Link did the same thing in American Skin. Are we seeing a permutation? Are we seeing a riff on that? Or are you going to do something completely different? 
Well, I'll say this, you know, Nina Simone says the, the artist's job is to reflect the times, you know, mm. and, and I'm just trying to reflect the times with my art. Like I said, I'm not special. I'm yeah. just a guy and my tool is the camera. That's it. I'm no more important than anyone else. And you are journalists. You do this stuff every day. You're tackling the big issues. Um, but I feel called, you know, as a, from, a, from a standpoint of testimony, from a standpoint of, 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 of the goodness that God has, has, has given me and my family and, you know, the mercy has been shown for me to even able to have the things that I have. I will never turn my back on my people ever. And I want my, my, my films to be my receipts on how I might have just contributed to the conversation. So my next film is called Solitary. Um, wow. It actually stars David Ayoelo. And uh, it deals with the prison industrial complex. Because as you know, in this country, uh, whilst, while slavery was partly outlawed, uh, under the 13th Amendment, if you are incarcerated or you're convicted of a crime, you are allowed to be enslaved. So we have a slave trade that is happening on our soil uh, and the humanity of so many of our brothers and sisters have been stripped to nothing. So I wanted to touch on that, you know, within, you know, cinematically. So the film's called Solitary Confinement and uh, Solitary, and it deals with the inhumane aspects of solitary confinement and that will, you know, it's done. Um, I'm, I'm oh, wow. editing it. Yeah, so I shot it already. And uh, I, I shot it at the beginning of the August, September, October of, of last year. Mm. Um, I, I try to stay busy. So there's that, and and I have a lot of stories I want to tell, brother, a lot. Um, and, and you know, and I'll say this: it's very difficult for uh, you know a black artist, specifically directors, um, because there's a, a, a an immense pressure to be super successful. Everything you touch has to be a home run, yeah. or you risk becoming irrelevant in an. And you risk becoming cold to investors if you don't return their money. So you see all these black directors that aren't all, that aren't all being cultivated because they don't get the shots that a lot of our, you know, peach or white uh, contemporaries get. You know, we yeah. don't often get to make films about black people just being black. It's a rare opportunity. Mm. You know, uh, and for me, I, I speak to our pain. I also speak to all the directors out there that are, are hitting so many barriers and obstacles you know it's uh you know we, we have to remain at a space in a space where we can have solidarity support each other you know if you are hearing my voice and you're an investor give a shot to these young up-and-coming uh, uh directors that are trying to tell stories trying to to show us through different lenses but, you know there are more lenses than just our pain you know like i said i'm just one guy there's so many other stories that seem like they don't get told because the gatekeepers either only want to see us in some way or don't want to be, don't want to feel um, guilty, you know? So, you know, I just want to take that moment to encourage all of our artists around, anyone that can hear my voice. You know, I obviously have a, a film school, the Nate Parker Foundation, where we, we literally put cameras in the hands of young people, but we have to cultivate our artists. We have to cultivate our actors. We, gotta, we have to cultivate our young journalists. You know, because we don't see ourselves represented enough. In fact, we see far too many gatekeepers and far too many, you know, obstacles when it comes to having to break through, you know? So, you know, I appreciate, I say that all to say, I appreciate you reaching out. I'm glad you did. I'm, I'm glad we were able to put this on. I appreciate your thoughtful questions. Appreciate you. what you mean to cinema, what you mean to, to us artists. You know, we can't, we can't do this alone. So I, I do need you. So I do appreciate you, you reaching out. 
We really do appreciate the time. Like I said, I know we've horrendously gone over, but I also appreciate your candidness as well. <clears throat> just before I go, um, just a, a shameless plug here. If you need anybody to proof or a, a critical friend to have a look at Solitary, I'm your guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll keep in touch. Maybe when I have an early cut, I'll let, I'll let you know and get your thoughts. Amazing. Nate Park, it's been incredible. Thank you again for your time. Joining me next, she's the Queen Bee over at The Bloody Crown. It's Nicole Dupre. You know, first off, I want to hear more about, you know, The Bloody Crown, because I feel that there's so much room out here for everybody. Tell me about The Bloody Crown. Um, it's essentially a platform for me to kind of get my thoughts about film and TV out. Um, I've not put too much um, content on there thus, yet, thus far. Um, I will do soon. Um, I promise. And um, yeah, so it was just kind of, I've always had a passion for film and TV and not really known where to put it. My main Twitter account is just a, you know, big mix of a lot of things. Um, and I feel like sometimes people would just follow me for my film and TV reviews and get mashed up in the whole, you know, sport and everything else all the drama I tweet about and stuff and all the spam so I thought you know what let me just make a separate page for them to go on to but mm. they don't have to kind of sift through all that mess and um yeah I've enjoyed posting on it I've been posting on it a lot more than I had when I created it um originally just because of you know one division and having a show to actually um follow week to week as opposed to binging so yeah that's that's what's behind the bloody crown incredible now We've assembled here like Avengers. Um, God, that was so corny. Sorry about that segue, but <laughs> we've assembled now really to talk about three films, and that is The Little Things, uh, Malcolm and Marie, and Judas and the Black Messiah. We're going to start with The Little Things. Now, you and I know that it's directed by John Lee Hancock. It stars Denzel Washington and um, Rami Malek and Jared Leto. Now, for me, this kind of like plays out as uh, a sheriff who kind of like stumbles upon his past. Basically, Denzel Washington plays Joe Deacon. Now he's the deputy sheriff who's called to collect evidence from a recent murder. Now he then finds himself kind of like taking two weeks off, basically going on a holiday, busman's holiday, to assist the lead detective to solve the crime. Now, it looks as though, for me, um, just looking at the flashbacks, it's kind of like obvious that it has throwbacks to an old crime which he was unable to solve. Now, for me, there was a lot of merit in this. There's a lot of good, but there's also a lot of bad. Now, I just want to like hand over to you, really, whilst we're on the good, because I'm a gentleman, ladies should be first, but for you, what was good about The Little Things? Um, let's see. I'd say, I'd say it was ambitious. Um, okay, so I often struggle to name my top five favorite films because they always mm. change, but one that's consistent is Seven. Yeah, I love that film with all my heart. So I definitely saw an intention here to kind of pay homage to that or, um, you know, pull from that. Um, so I'd say that was a positive for me, you know. Um, I saw the intent behind the film. I saw what they were trying to do. You know, it's very vivid. 
um it's a slow burn which I, I love slow burns I know some people aren't too appreciative of them appreciative of them but I do love a slow burn um you know it tries to be very character driven and honestly it's my favorite subgenre is um psych- the, the psychological thriller so those are things I found good and those are what I'd call positives um so yeah there's a good premise behind it I'd say you see I I think that in terms of performances they were terrific Rami Malek and Denzel Washington and indeed um Jared Leto um I think they really chewed up the scenery beautiful locations I love the vistas I love the sweeping plains beautiful and the tense dialogue it really was quite claustrophobic and I love a good twist I'm not going to spoil the um twist and where it appears and how it appears but I love a good twist but let's segue into then the bad I'm going to kick off by saying aesthetically it did have callbacks to Seven and that's why it was bad it was like what lazy filmmaking I get homages but this was like a straight jack in terms of atmosphere in terms of aesthetics and for me the whole Seven all over again I know it's 2021 but nah there are certain films that you can't touch and Seven is one of them now I I (laughs) I had a problem with the way that everything kind of like unraveled and it unraveled really quickly. Like all of a sudden we were in the kind of closing stanzas and I found that slightly jarring. So those were the the bad aspects for me. How about you? Um, Quickly on the performances, I definitely say that um, Jared, this is the type of thing he, he, he excels in. Um, so I definitely saw the positives in that. And on the seven thing, as much as I did, I, I do love that movie and I appreciate, I'm going to contradict, contradict myself here. I do appreciate the homage. Um, I agree with you. Um, because it wasn't even like a creative, it wasn't a creative, they didn't touch on it creatively. They kind of, it was uh, a straight up kind of hijack. So yeah. I do agree with you um, there. Um, I just, I don't know whether they didn't put the planning into it or, you know, some the story was a bit janky. The pacing, like you said, was just not good for me. And pacing mm. is everything in these movies, you know, it can take you in and out of it. So um, I think the sound was a bit off at times, the setting, it was just a little bit of everything, you know, all the most important, I'd say, technical um, technical aspects of a film that you're kind of looking for to tick off and say oh that was good that was good that was good even though it wasn't overwhelmingly bad it was just too many of the little things that came together in it it was just I don't want to be I don't like to be mean about films it was kind of a microcosm of shite (laughs) you know something the whole premise of trash omg is um straight up no chaser film (laughs) tv review so if that's how you saw it, that is how I prefer you to call it. Now, for me, though, this gets my three stars out of five. How much would you have given it? Or how much do you give uh, it? A two. Wow. <laughs> it's available on HBO Max. I don't know how people are actually going to see it if they're in the UK, as we don't have that as a platform. But um, I'm sure where there is a will, there is a way, if you get my meaning. <laughs> Blackbusters. Right, so 
Next up, Malcolm and Maurice, written and directed by Sam Levinson, and it stars John David Washington and Zendaya. Now, the premise is really, really simple. After returning home with his girlfriend, after the premiere of his film, Malcolm Elliott finds himself in hot water with his girlfriend, Marie Jones. And that's a very simplistic way of actually yes. describing what actually unfolds. <laughs> What's good about this? First off, I rate Zendaya very highly. Um, you know, people have said kind of, she's played this kind of stoic, mysterious, um, I'd say, uh, troubled character in, you know, Spider-Man and Euphoria. But I think she kind of took it, she stepped up here. It was very emotional. She um, kind of, she had to go through the motions quite quickly. Um, uh, and I think she got to kind of show her range here. You know, it's just them. It's one setting. It's you know, it's there's not too there's not too much background. So I definitely say Zendaya. I'd say that um, Jordan David Washington, if I'm getting his name correct, yeah, um, kind of pulled a lot of. I'd say he squeezed blood out of stone. Essentially, I didn't love the script, so I think both actors really, really did what they could with that script, and they kind of elevated the film. I love the cinematography. I love um, how many pictures I could pull out of it. It was just kind of, it was quite incredible. At first I was kind of thinking, why does this need to be black and white? It doesn't essentially need to be black and white, but I got it at the end. It was just very beautiful. Um, I appreciate trying to make it artsy and I appreciate, I appreciate that the movie had two black leads or one black lead and one mixed race lead, however you see it, um, and didn't, focus on race as much because a lot of these things we see kind of it's always about what does this mean and what does this mean we kind of got to focus on their relationship which is nice I mean there's a lot of things that you know it's, it's, it's I'm talking about the movie itself as well where you talk about oh this doesn't have to be political and me I like to talk about politics I love to talk about how my race are affected you know I love to um, elevate black stories but I just love sometimes where it's just this is a couple and they're in trouble I like that aspect of it um so yeah, I definitely say those are positives. For me, the good being that it was black and white. I love black and white movies. I love yeah. the aesthetics. I love the cinematography. I love the photography. I love the spelt 106 minutes that this was because, you know, for something so jarring, I mean, essentially we spent 106 minutes, <laughs> sorry, 106 uh, minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> watching, I, I mentioned the 30 seconds because it was a jarring experience, but I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm actually getting into the bad, but on the good, I love the fact that, you know, this was made, you know, against all odds. It was filmed during a pandemic. Now that in itself is a massive feat. And to a certain extent, the script, it seemed to a certain extent that there was a lot of improv going on there. There was a lot of um, kind of like unscripted moments, which I liked. You, you got that kind of feeling that, you know, they were going off, uh, off the beaten track, as it were. They were given material, which they then kind of like worked with. That's the kind of vibe I got from it. But how about the bad for you? The bad for me, okay. With the script, right. I just thought at times, do human beings talk to each other like this? <laughs> I mean, you know, I do, I, 
I do tend to use a I do use a lot of big words sometimes you know when I'm talking to my friends or I'm writing whatever but it was just like a fucking thesaurus had been just thrown you know he just found loads of words in the thesaurus and it was like I'm going to throw this I'm going to throw this in I thought you know what as smart as people are and as much as people love to use big words they don't use them so that many times in succession so sometimes I felt it to be a bit unnatural Mm. um I also felt like um I've read a bit about Sam I don't want to butcher his surname is it Levinson that's right and I've seen how he kind of, um, I've forgotten the the, the uh, critic he has a problem with, but he's essentially kind of come for a critic in this movie. Yeah. Um, who, uh, again, I can't remember the film it was. He did, um, he did, he did create a film that wasn't received too well, especially about his treatment of women, women and stuff like that. Mm. So it's kind of a reply to her. And I think it's just so shady and it's a bit, you know, it's a bit, it's just shysty behavior to kind of bring these two beautiful actors and these very two talented people to kind of tell a story just to kind of throw shade at someone or, um, you know, and it's the, t- they've, he's brought in these two actors who won't be seen as pretentious for doing it. Um, so I don't like that aspect. I also, what else didn't I like? I'm just going through my negatives in my head right now. <laughs> um, um Oh, you can come back to me for a second. I've lost, okay. I've lost my train of thought. I yeah. just want to pick up on something you said earlier, and you were talking about um, it being a film not centred on race. For me, it was entirely about race. It was jarringly about race. The, just the aesthetics, it being in black and white, race being an issue, I think being presented as black and white. And the, the constant throwbacks and throwaway lines in terms of, um, oh, if I was a white uh, director, this wouldn't be happening. And the, the fact that I'm a black director, this is why I'm getting uh, this level of critique. And just things that Zendaya was actually throwing away, or Marie Jones uh, was throwing at um, um, John David Washington, again, based on race. Now, just centering around the, the, the whole premise of you know, it being black and white. I think, you know, it's kind of like plain to see that this was actually based on Sam Levinson's um, own experience. And that for me was my biggest problem with that. Why use this as kind of like your ammunition to get back at said critic? Why use this as some kind of like weapon? Is that how we're actually using actors. I mean, that, that's essentially what he's done. He's hired the big guns and said, throw mud at this woman, essentially, through this story. I didn't like the fact that there wasn't any closure. Again, yeah. not trying to spoil it, but it just seemed like after the 106 minutes, there was no closure. It was like, uh, uh, and it was jarring for me. Who wants to watch an argument for that long? from beginning yeah. to end. And when you thought it was gonna be over, once you thought they'd exercised their demons, it was almost as like, okay, let's start it all over again. And speaking of exercising demons, this is the real problem I have with this film. It was almost as though, or well, not almost as though, it was Sam Levinson exercising his demons. And I just don't think that, you know, this is the medium by which you do that. If, you, if he had beef, take it to her explain to her 
dialogue with her, but don't use, you know, film as a way of actually, you know, um, using that to be your narrative to get back at someone. I 100% agree with you. And now that you've said, you've talked about, you, you know, kind of expanded on how he was talking about, oh, if I was a white, if I was a white director, I'm thinking about Zendaya talking about, you kind of, you know, those white critics on Twitter. Um, yeah, you are correct. You're definitely correct about that. And it's just kind of, I don't know if this was self-awareness or not, but it was interesting to me. There was, I think there was a line where it was like, someone said, nothing, nothing productive is going to happen here today. And yeah. I was like, yeah, that's the whole movie. And then there was another line I'm trying to think of. It was about 30 minutes in. Oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was kind of like, it was around, it was kind of touching on how the conversation's not going to go anywhere. And I thought, yeah, it really didn't go anywhere because mm. it was just, a, it was a lot of, um, oh, and one more thing. Oh, and this, oh, and that, yeah. oh, this has ended. And it's another thing. It's kind of, I, I said, I've gone to, I've gone to film school and I've seen how actors do all their, you know, um, do all their exercises. And it's a lot of um, back and forth and it's a lot of yes, and, and then someone adds a thing on the end or it's no, but, and then mm. someone adds a thing. And it, that's just how it was. It felt like an acting exercise at times. Um, yeah, I'm just, again, I'm not cool with what he did with the critic. I just think it's, Oh, I think it's so lazy. I think it's very cheap. Um, and I'm not sure whether he thought audiences wouldn't clock onto that. Um, I don't know. I think maybe he had to have a bit more respect for the audience um, in terms of that, because people caught onto, onto that so quickly. Um, as soon as the, probably the first or second mention, I, met, I, even, I, I, I was able to cotton onto that as well. So um, yeah, I didn't particularly appreciate that and I definitely um, agree with you on the ending there was no catharsis at all it was just like okay then I thought then why don't you just go to sleep <laughs> um, when you first came home then if you're just gonna wake up and then go stand on the hill you know what I mean yeah. just go to sleep then um, yeah that was it and the mac and cheese I don't know it was just the gripe I was like the way he was going through that mac and cheese I was we like like that who eats like that? Damn. I was like, how does she not get angrier? I was just, I was <laughs> sitting at home fuming. I'm not even there with him. So yeah, that's just a, that's a, that's a cheap blow. But yeah. You know, one of the most interesting um, premises for this is that I've, I, I, I can't remember who I was talking to, but it was a discussion about the film and it was, have you ever thought that Malcolm was actually there on his own, arguing with himself, like a kind of Fight Club-esque type of um, scenario in that Marie was a figment of his imagination. Marie had actually died several years earlier. And, you know, basically the whole apology thing was he never got to apologize. He never got to say sorry. And he was literally arguing with himself. She was I a think that's, I think that's quite brilliant, actually. I hadn't thought about that aspect, but it would make sense. You know, it's kind of the nature of... They were barely having a conversation at times. It was like monologue after monologue. Yeah. Um, it was just, I think he went into kind of a very long soliloquy when, when he got the... Uh, I'm going to say this in quotes, but... Um, hash, um, not hashtag, sorry. Um, quote unquote 
good review. It was about seven minutes. Mm. And she just sat there laughing. And I just thought to myself, well, this is interesting. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I do acknowledge that you do listen to people rant sometimes. But it was just, it felt, again, it felt unnatural to me. But that that aspect and that um, that idea in theory is, is a very good one I hadn't thought of. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand on that later, actually. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> uh, uh, for me, it gets my two stars out of five. I found it uncomfortable. I found it mm-hmm. jarring. And I found the whole um, cinematic experience, whilst beautiful, it was painful to watch. Yeah. Uh, I do feel like... <sighs> If Zendaya gets, you know, some accolades or a couple nominations for this, I won't be, I won't feel begrudged. I think she was very good. Mm. Um, like I said, I kind of feel like they squeezed blood out of stone. They did what they could with the script under all the circumstances. The budget was 2.5 million. They did their own makeup. They picked their own wardrobe. You know, it's all those type of things. I do appreciate all that. Mm. Um, it's written in a short space of time. You know what, they say that, but considering how he's kind of framed the story and kind of gone for an, a critic, maybe it wasn't written in a short space of time, but um, <laughs> they did have to film it under under very... Um, Try and Yeah, circumstances. So I do appreciate all that. It just wasn't as amazing as I thought it was going to be when I first saw the trailer and I saw the photos. Yeah. So I gave it a two, two and a half out of five. Um, yeah, I do wish it was better. I really do wish it was better. <laughs> you know, one of the things that's kind of struck me about um, the way in which you write, because obviously you do quite a lot of film critique um, on Letterbox, um, was I disagree with a lot of your standpoints and your positions. That's why I thought you'd be amazing and perfect for the show. And that's why it's worked out quite well. But I can't believe that we, we've agreed both times on our <laughs> markings. Two out of five is exactly what I would give it. You gave it a half a star more, but you're being really, really generous. It's available on Netflix and people listening can still watch Malcolm and Marie. So, on to the centerpiece, the pièce de résistance of our chat, um, Judas and the Black Messiah. It's um, going to be released in cinemas in the States, but also on HBO Max. Now, it's directed by Shaka King. It stars Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons and Dominique, sorry, Dominique uh, Fishbank. Now, for me, Jesse Plemons, sorry, just to inject that, whenever I see Jesse Plemons, he just reminds me of an evil Matt Damon. He's always yeah. got that kind of like, look, <laughs> where you, as soon as you see him, you're like, oh my days, nah, not you again. I know yeah. how it's gonna pan out. Yeah, he's just got the face, it's the face. You're just yeah. scared. But anyway, in terms of synopsis, um, this, I saw this as a snapshot into the life of Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Illinois um, Black Panther Party, and his betrayal at the hands of William O'Neill, or Wild Bill, to his mates. Now, O'Neill was the then head of security of that chapter of the Black Panthers. And um, I suppose let's, let's look at what was good about it. I personally thought that Daniel Kaluuya, he needs to dust off his tux. Actually, just full on buy one. Because Absolutely. I think 
it being award season, he's going to be wearing that quite a lot. Virtually, mm-hmm. of course, because of social distancing, but he's going to be wearing that quite a lot. Also good, also absolutely amazing was Lakeith Stanfield. Um, I'm glad that he's no longer on um, Clubhouse moaning and knuckled uh, <laughs> <laughs> out to his craft because he was it was absolutely amazing. I love the attention to detail because after the film, I actually went and I, you know, looked into the story deep, 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 had a real deep dive in terms of the aesthetics, what they set up on screen and everything was like, kind of like picture perfect. Um, Jesse Plemons was amazing, um, as was, and I don't think this is said enough, Dominique Fishback. Now we're gonna come back to Dominique, Fishback um, when we touch on the bad, because um, I think that this is a travesty and which uh, I, I hope that you are gonna agree with. But the parallels um, with what's actually going on today, racism, police subjugation and brutality, it has resonance globally. And it's just amazing that this isn't really a, a timely film when you think about it, because this is a timeless film. I unfortunately feel as though we're going to be looking at this in 20 years time and thinking this is quite timely. But that was my good. What are yours? Um, You've pretty much said everything I wanted to say, actually. Um, (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I, I completely agree with you. I thought it was so well told. I thought the actors are incredible. I think Again, like you said, Daniel needs to dust off that suit because he's coming for those awards. I'll be very shocked if he's not if he's not the front runner because he was absolutely incredible. And I know in his um, the Q and A he did, he talked about how much research he did on Chicago's politics and mm. you know the six week kind of course that the Black Panther Party had to go through and all the books they had to read and he read them and all the work he did with dialect coaches. And I think. Um, obviously people don't usually think about those things, but I just thought he just put so much into this because obviously he's British. Um, he just put so much into it and you could see it. Yeah. Um, it was near perfect and it was beautiful. And 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 Lakeith is brilliant as well. Again, I'm also happy he's no longer in Clubhouse Moaning because that was <laughs> a time. That was a time. Could not believe what I was seeing, but yeah, he's very good. He's very versatile as well. You know, you kind of look at him and think, does he have this range? And he absolutely does. He always delivers. But um, uh, I do, again, I do appreciate the story. I think it was handled very well by the director, mostly. And I like the fact that they had, you know, Fred Hampton Jr. on set at all times, kind of um, making sure things were going well. And yeah, I just think the subject matter was handled really well. I will go into that a bit later when we um, mm. talk about negatives and stuff. But um yeah, the film is just, it rightly depicts how fucking crazy this is. Yeah. Um, and how you spoke about timelessness is is, is perfect because, it, I mean, it's very sad to say, but I won't be surprised either. I mean, this type of thing, um, I think, will get people to look into Fred Hampton more. I admittedly, I didn't know too much. I did know enough, um, simply because I, when I went to university, I studied, I studied um foreign policy and American politics and I kind of looked into these things so I knew a bit about him but someone who doesn't do that and someone who kind of you know we grew up in Britain and they teach us about they teach us more about American black history than British black history obviously yeah but they're not going to teach us about Fred Hampton they're just not <laughs> going to teach you know what I mean they're not going to tell us 
he was assassinated by you know they're just not going to do that so I think it will be very good for um the diaspora to kind of have this film and be able to expand on it and go and look so I think yeah it was very detailed it was it was brilliant in my eyes um I, I don't think it was perfect but nothing's ever perfect and um I'm one of those people who's kind of ugh, how many times we're gonna have to read of our pain and all these things you know it gets a bit yeah. frustrating I, I do think this film was it was a good it was a good choice for me what was your just before we we move on to the band <clears throat> what was your take on Daniel Kalua as you rightly say look he's a Brit what is he doing in the role of someone who is quite iconic, quite an important figure in terms of um, historical significance, but playing somebody who, you know, in terms of history and um, in terms of journey, surely this is like a million miles away from the range of Daniel Kaluuya. What was your whole take on, you know, Black Hollywood actually coming for him with pitchforks drawn? You know what? As someone who has kind of tried to step into that industry and has gone to school and done all that shit, mm. I still completely, I understand where they're coming from. It's a little bit annoying that, you know, we've had these films with Martin Luther King and it's a Brit and there's Harriet and it's a Brit and there's Brad Hampton and it's a Brit. Mm. I understand their gripes with that. Um, I'm also on the side of, um, you know what? I completely understand it, but I think sometimes they kind of have this idea that, you know, we're so detached, you know, that we're so detached from their history or our own history or pain and, you know, all these things um, that I sometimes feel like it's not, it's not, it's not, I don't know what word I'm looking for. I'll just, yeah, it, it, I feel like sometimes they feel like it's just not genuine. Um, right. Is And I know, I feel like Daniel doesn't see these things as just a job. I feel like he's, you know, a normal actor doesn't go and do what he does. I mean, a lot of, all actors go and do preparation, all actors try and get into the character. He went above and beyond. And maybe that was because he's British as well. And he needed to kind of, um, he had somewhere, he was coming from somewhere much more, maybe removed from that situation. Um, because there's a situation where it's kind of, do we not hire someone that is from Chicago now? Do they need to be from Chicago? Um, do they need to be um, an American descendant of slavery? You know, there's kind of all those things. So I definitely do understand where they're coming from. It's a bit frustrating to see it. Yeah. Because um, you worry about things like the accent. I mean, that's a very unique accent as well. Um, nailed it. He he did nail it, and you you do wonder, you know, could the average American even do it as well? You know, I mean, uh, let alone a Brit. So he did. You can tell he just put so much into it. He did a lot yeah. of work with his dialect coaches. He watched a lot of um, tape and video. Yeah. So um, yeah, I do definitely understand their grabs. I do think it's a bit annoying, but sometimes I wonder what place it's coming from. Um, when they do express those gripes. Um, Daniel, I don't think has any ill intent. There's not a lot of work over here for British actors, those type of roles. The work for British actors over here is pretty much very samey and it's very um, limited and um, there's not many leads here. I mean, it's Idris Elba and Lucifer and you know, you're kind of scratching your head looking for more. Yeah. So I do 
and I do understand it from both sides. You know what, there was a, for me, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but there was a, a sense of foreshadowing that he was destined for this role. Do you remember in Widows, um, it was in the scene where they're doing the whole um, rapping and he's looking at the guy, like he's mm. staring at him. They, they made reference to the Black Panthers in that scene. And, you know, him being there kind of made me think, oh, and then again in uh, Queen and Slim, again in the scene that he's in and, you know, with him as the reference point, they make mention of the Black Panthers there. And then actually being in Black Panther, the movie, it made me think, man, you, you were destined to play this role. Yeah, I think they kind of looked at him even in those roles and thought, you know what, he could do this. Um, because I feel like I feel like all filmmakers know the kind of sort of that there's going to be a slight backlash at times. It's not from everyone. It might not even be a majority, but yeah. there is going to be backlash. So you have to hire someone that's fucking good. Mm. really um and that's dedicated and he's gonna work his ass off um and that is daniel that is that is him in a nutshell i mean i'm talking about him like he's my mate but um, <laughs> <laughs> that is him so um yeah i totally i totally agree that widow scene is incredible um yeah so on to the bad what was the bad aspect of this for you um i've been speaking a lot do you want to go or should i <laughs> or should yeah. i go I, I, I like I say I'm, I'm I'm happy to jump in. For me, Dominic Fishback um, was used far too sparingly, and this kind of like underlined my my central gripe with with the with the film, in that people forget the role of women yeah. in our struggle, which is why you know <laughs> this story was like an opportunity to kind of like shout that from the rooftops, to herald that, to kind of like make real a, a, a big deal about the part that women played but it didn't and she had like a, a, a very small line that kind of like made reference to it um and it just needed to be shouted as opposed to whispered so that's what I had a problem with and just Dominique Fishback in terms of her performance in terms of her lines again she shone bright but was dimmed because of her screen presence was like fleeting and like literally you got snatches of her snatches of dialogue you needed a lot more from such an integral piece an integral part of this man's past and um i don't know i, I know this is a, a a small thing but and I know maybe this is what happens when you watch things twice, but I noticed this on the first watch. Do you remember the scene where um, Panther J, he goes on that rampage because um, his mate has been killed. Now yeah. he's there, he's battling out, he's, 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 he's gunning all these cops. And in the last scene, uh, just before he's wasted, um, he points the gun at the cop and you can see the cop's wig move. And I'm like, are you guys serious? That was jarring for me, I'm sorry. And I noticed yeah. that on the first watch. And again, it kind of like, it, <laughs> I think this is really petty, but it made me think, come on, man, attention to detail. Cause I saw it on the first watch and I saw it on the second. And it, it kind of, like I say, it was jarring. It takes um, you out of it definitely when you notice things like that. Yes. Yeah, thank you yeah. for that. 
Now, the last thing I would say was the runtime. The runtime was very baggy in terms of what we're not, we're, we're, well, it was, it was just over two hours, but you would have thought that the, the issue I have is not actually with the runtime, it's what they did with the runtime. You'd have thought we'd see a little bit more in terms of backstory, a little bit more in terms of padding, in terms of um, narrative around William O'Neill. If you think about it, this film was essentially about him. Yeah. Whilst Daniel Kaluuya chewed up every single scene, commandeered and um, took all the attention, sucked all the oxygen into the space that he was standing and he was talking in. For me, you know, this was essentially about William O'Neill being a rat. I mean, the clues in the title, Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah. But I, I didn't think we got enough in terms of his backstory because whilst um, he gave an empathetic um, performance, Lakeith Stanfield, I really did feel for, um, you know, his character, William O'Neill. And you could see the angst, you could see the turmoil, you could see the kind of conflict that was actually, you know, going through him, emanating from him. And actually, you know, he, he was in a total struggle from start to finish. I would want to, I wanted to see more of what caused that struggle, what caused that angst. Why was he actually um, out there pretending to be an FBI agent? I wanted to hear, and I wanted to see more of, of, of him and his backstory, but that, 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 those aspects for me, that was the bad aspect of the film. And I, I know I'm nitpicking, I know I'm being very, um, microcosmic in the way that I'm actually analyzing it, but um, I thought those were, were notable when we're talking about the bad aspects. How about you? Um, I completely agree with that also. Um, I'll start from William O'Neill actually, since you've just finished on that. I'll say that maybe he was a bit underwritten um, yes. and he had to fill in a lot of gaps. He had to kind of make up for a lot of it, which he did brilliantly. Um, so you just have to applaud him for that but I did love you know he had this very nervous demeanor and he was very paranoid and yeah I love how he played that but I just feel like they could have gone into it so much more you know I wanted to know how did he actually feel about the Panthers you know yeah. how did he feel about what he was doing um, maybe they didn't have time again that's on the runtime maybe they could have you know made that bit I don't think anyone's getting up of after two hours and going oh shit well another half an hour would have been made this a bit too long you know what I mean yeah um, so they could have definitely done that more um you know what? I feel like we know this is about him essentially this is about how he infiltrate he was able to infiltrate and bring the FBI into it and take down um take down Fred um essentially um mm. I love that. That's great. Um, that that's a good. That's a nice choice. It's a choice that will probably appeal to audiences more. It's a bit more palatable than focusing on Fred. But they could have focused on Fred. Um, you know, this is big. This is a big historical moment. And I think what you touched on with um, Dominique, um, that's kind of that's that is a symptom of not focusing on Fred as much, um, because you know she's mentioned in her Q and A as well that. You know, a lot of women are always an afterthought or it's um, women have to prove themselves to to show how much they deserve these people that they're with. And they're kind of always the, oh, this person's wife and this person's wife. And in this story, it was, he loved her for her mind, which I think was great. But like you said, 
it was so fleeting she didn't get enough time yeah so um that's that's and i think that's also that's just because the film's essentially not just about fred hampton and i think a big thing that i was kind of um i wouldn't say it took me out but i think it was just missing is how young these these people actually were right yeah daniel is 29 lakeith is 32 dominique as young as she looks and as brilliant as she was and you know what to be to be fair to her it wasn't really her problem as much she looks quite youthful Mm. she's also 29 though she does look quite youthful the other two and i know we have good skin i know we don't age badly (laughs) they don't look young you know um and i feel like a big aspect of william o'neill that you have to consider is that the boy was 17 years old when he was approached by an fbi agent you know what i mean Mm-mm. and all that coercion and kind of finding someone to look after after and being manipulated at 17 years old it's much more it's easier to believe and um you can empathize a bit more um and it's, it's, it's actually what happened so seeing a 17 year old being played by a 32 year old well i don't know i don't think it was 17 in the film but um it kind of i was a bit disappointed in that and yeah, I would have just like to see the youthfulness more. I know these people, I know they were so mature to be able to do this. I mean, he was holding, he was leading a whole faction, um, a whole party of people in Chicago, but they were still 20 and 21. I mean, before he died, he just turned 21, you know what I mean? So um, I think that was, that's definitely a negative for me, but that's offset by the fact that, you know, it's kind of, I can just say, well, fuck it. They've been, they were amazing. So yeah. um it's a it's an is another nitpicky one for me because they're amazing what can i say like can i would i say i'd replace them with other actors after just seeing them fucking blow it out of the water maybe not so um <laughs> i can cr- criticize myself for that as well um but yeah um those are my criticisms really i still gave the movie a four out of five because i thought it was brilliant um See, there we go again, agreeing with each other. I gave it a four out of five as well. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. Yeah, I just feel like the negatives are so... It's just very nitpicky things. Um, It's not... There's not glaring holes in the film. You know, it's just essentially they could have expanded more. I think, lastly, because I'm rambling, but they could have gone into Fred's politics a bit more. He was very radical. Um, Could have gone into him really not liking black capitalism and then because you know he's he's against black capitalism but they've got jay-z on the album you know um it's things like that they they could have pushed it a bit more and maybe again that's just to be more um palatable and you know acceptable to certain audiences certain audiences i say in quotes you know what i'm talking about um uh but yeah maybe maybe that was why um you know it's funny you mentioned the music um just in passing there. I was gonna put that down. I'd actually put it down and I scrubbed it out. And I'm just looking down at my notes and I'm looking that I scrubbed this out. Given that the rich history that the 60s and 70s have in terms of music, you didn't really get that permeating. Yes, you got it peppered, but given how incredible an era that was for music, that was slightly disappointing for me, to be honest yeah. with you. But the reason why I scrubbed it out, because yes, it was there, but not as glaring, not as blaring, not as loud and proud as what I 
really was going to expect or what I thought was going to be um, kind of like shouted from the rooftops in terms of soundtrack. Yeah, because um, it's kind of like, um, have you seen Lovecraft Country? No, I haven't. Okay, I'll just explain. It's set in the 50s, right? And, you know, I'm a, I don't mind there being contemporary music in, in kind of um, classical drama pieces and period dramas or whatever. Like, I think sometimes it's very cool. Mm. But sometimes it was just so out of place. And I love that series, right? I've watched it twice. I've reviewed it. I've listened to hundreds of different things about it. So I do love that series. But sometimes the music just took me out of it. And I thought, what are you doing here? And that's kind of, um, like you've just said, it's it's not um, it's not overbearing. Mm. But it is still a thing where it's like, these periods had really good music. You don't yeah. need to use it. And just using someone who's quite against his politics, I think it's, I don't want to criticise it too much. You know, Fred Hampton Jr. is um, one of the producers and he's he's kind of making a lot of decisions for this film. And if he didn't have a, too much of a problem with it, you know, who am I? Um, who so are yeah, we? I just thought, yeah, exactly, who are we? So <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just thought that was interesting. Um, but yeah, just going back to the politics thing, I just wish they pushed it more. I just wish they thought, you know what, fuck it. Um, this is what he believed in. Um, I just thought they, uh, I just wish they went for it much more. It was a bit watered down, um, but less watered down than what we've seen in the past. Well, on that note, I think we've left the best to last as we've actually, you know, concluded our uh, canter through these three films that he would don't have to actually uh, go very far to see your work because you'll be uh, curating a, a, a season uh, on trashomfg.com of your greatest hits, as it were, in terms of reviews. So if people do want to check out your work, they can head over to trashomfg.com. I'm going to put you under pressure now. When's that going to be dropping? Sorry, I, 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 uh, <laughs> I probably missed this part. Hopefully by Monday. I'm just trying to. I've got a lot of backlog from 2020 um, <laughs> that I'm trying to finish off so I can go through my letterbox and um, yeah. Um, but hopefully by Monday, I'm gonna try and just, just, just get those done. Um, I've done a lot of them. I've done like half of them and then moved on to the next one and I'm just getting more and more ideas and trying to cut things down. Um, but yeah, those will be on the website soon. I do promise. Um, yeah incredible well i have to say it has been an absolute pleasure chewing the fat with you nicole and you know you will be back now that i've uh, got it in my head and discovered that you're not a bunny boiler and that you're not going to stab <laughs> up and uh, <laughs> run yeah. with uh, some tractor or something like that um you will definitely be back we'll definitely have you back on trash omfg in the future thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it that's another Trash OMFG in the books. If you want to continue any of the conversations around anything we touched upon on this episode, hit me up on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is MikeWoTV. And also remember, remember to leave us a comment and rating over at Apple Podcasts. And I'll catch you on the next episode.
Uh. 